we welcome you to the REST podcast. The messages you will hear have been taken from sessions from past REST conferences. We pray that God will use this message to encourage and strengthen you in your walk with the Lord and your ministry for Him. Well, we really have looked forward to these two or three days, and we look forward to it every year. And uh, Scott and I have have a kindred heart about this. We want to do one thing this week. We want to encourage God's servants. I grew up in a preacher's home. Uh, My dad is here. My mother's here. And uh, he's pastored the same church for 33 years. I'm very grateful to God for their example. That's what I grew up around. And then worked for a pastor for nearly 20 years. That's where Brother Hooks and I labored together. And now as an evangelist, I'm with different pastors literally every week of my life. And I love it. And I know something. I know that the spiritual temperature, the intensity of the opposition has increased exponentially in recent years. And uh, part of the, the heart for this meeting is just to refresh God's people. How many of you know preachers need their souls fed? And the spiritual reset button. Now, this is not a preaching conference. So if that's what you thought, that's a, that's a different meeting. We'll tell you about some of those. But this is not really a preaching conference. This is really more of a Bible study type thing, and it is a time for us to just get our own hearts nourished in the Lord and refreshed. And uh, I'm honored to get to be a part of it with my friend and Brother Edwards, of course. We thank God for him. He's one of my wife's absolutely all-time favorite preachers, and so every time we get to be together and hear the minister of the Word of God, that's always a great thing. What I'm going to do in this hour is I want to share with you our theme. Every year we, we choose a theme for the REST conference, Something from the Word of God. How many of you think it's good we start with the Word of God? So it's a Bible theme, and it is something that we really believe and we prayed over that God wants us to emphasize this year. And it is found, interestingly enough, in my favorite book of the Bible, which is the book of Philippians. So if you'll open your Bible with me tonight to the book of Philippians, we'll begin here. I don't know if you have a favorite book. How many of you do have a favorite book? Good. Tell me what it is on the count of three. One, two, three. That's a good book, whatever you said. If it's in the Bible, that's good. Uh, Anybody else, Philippians is your favorite? I'm just curious. Ah, Brother Edwards, yours? That's good. Yours? Wonderful. It is a book of Christian joy. I still believe God's people ought to be the happiest people on planet Earth. And yet, the reality is there are a lot of Christian people who are miserable. (laughs) I hate to tell you this. This sounds awfully negative to start, but I'm with a lot of ministers who are absolutely miserable. And I don't think it ought to be that way, and yet, how do you get the joy back? You don't get the joy back by standing in front of the mirror and say, all right, we're going to be happy today. That doesn't work. You don't get the joy by trying to find another location to serve in or a different group of people to work with because you follow you wherever you go. And when you get there, problem's there too. The joy must always be found in Jesus. I was thinking, listen to those hymns a minute ago. By the way, both of the young men that were up here a while ago, this is interesting to me. He's got a great staff of people here. They're doing a wonderful job. But both of the young men that were up here leading at the beginning of the meeting, both of them are pastor's sons. And it's interesting to me that they grew up in the Lord's work and they love the ministry. That's a good thing. And uh, there's something to that, the, the joy of the Lord in our hearts, in our homes that makes Another generation say, that's what we want. That's what we long for. Uh, may, I, may I speak on behalf of a, of a younger generation of preachers coming along? Because I'm kind of caught betwixt generations here. But there's a lot of young ministers right now that are wondering if there's any joy in the Lord's work. 
And it, it shouldn't be that way. It just shouldn't be that way. But I was thinking while we were singing earlier those great songs about Jesus. Now, look, I am glad I'm in the ministry. Anybody else glad you're in the ministry? May I tell you what I'm more happy about than being in the ministry? I'm glad I'm saved. Somebody said, I've lost the joy in the ministry. Then you've lost the joy of your salvation. You don't keep joy in the ministry by trying to be a happy minister. You keep joy in the ministry by being a happy Christian. So if we go all the way back to the beginning and we marvel that God would save hill-deserving sinners like us and let us be a part of the greatest work on planet Earth, don't you think that might do something to renew the joy of the Lord in our work? And so we come to our text in Philippians chapter number 3. What a great chapter. It is my life chapter. As a teenager, this chapter really just came alive to me, and I've spent so much time in it. But tonight, all the application to ministry. Let's begin in verse 10. Paul writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus." And I want you to take your pen tonight and mark two words in verse 13, right in the heart of the verse, one thing. Let's get this out of the way. I will talk about more than one thing, all right? But all the things I'll talk about will connect to the one thing. You see, this one thing touches every part of your life. It touches every part of your ministry. It is all-encompassing. Now, Philippians is fascinating for many reasons. It's a book of Christian joy, but Philippians has probably more biographical information about the Apostle Paul than any of his other letters. There are little snippets in other letters, but when you come to Philippians, you have a lot of his autobiography. You have a lot of the testimony of his life and what he left and what he was pursuing and what God was doing in him. So you get a little glimpse into the heart of a minister, into the heart of a man that was just so passionately in love with Jesus, he was eaten up with it. And when he writes these words, he's not sitting on a beach somewhere enjoying a sabbatical. He's chained. He's in prison. He's in bonds. And yet there is this wonderful liberty to his spirit. He's, he's hemmed in, but he's not hemmed in because he's found the freedom that comes through the Lord being big in his life. It's, it's powerful to me. But what of this one thing? You know, sin complicates everything. Can we agree on that? And we are living in a complicated age. Ministry has changed. Now, it really hasn't changed. It's the same ministry, but the people we're ministering to have changed. And the world we're living in, the culture of the day, is so everlasting complex. I mean, it's a ball of mess. And the only thing that can cut through that is the simplicity that is in Christ. And when you come to Philippians chapter number 3, I love this. Paul is in a mess, and the people he's writing to are living. Philippi was known as Little Rome. This was not an easy place to serve the Lord. This was not the Bible belt of his day. 
This was the most godless culture you could possibly imagine, yet in the middle of it, God had planted a church and Christ was building his church and the Holy Spirit of God was working in believers and Paul writes to them and says, I want you to know there's one thing that's kept me on target all of my life and if you'll learn this one thing, it will keep you on the right path as well. The one thing is really not a thing, it's a person. His name is Jesus because the entire passage is about Paul's relationship with Christ. In fact, let me just show you. We're not going to study all of this, but just look at the chapter for a second. In verses 1, 2, and 3, Jesus is his joy. He said, I'm just rejoicing in Christ. I'm, I'm not rejoicing in me. I'm not rejoicing in what I've gotten done. I'm just rejoicing in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones told a group of preachers one day, he said, you fellows better find something to rejoice in besides your own sermons because someday you may not be able to preach those sermons. I thought a lot about that. If my joy is found in the places where I get to travel and preach and the people I get to be with and the opportunities I have, if my joy is rooted in that, then that means my joy can ebb and flow based on the circumstances of that season of my life. But if my joy is rooted in the unchanging character of Jesus Christ, then I can rejoice if, if no one is around and nothing is going like I want it to go. The joy is in Jesus then when you start in verse number 4, down through about verse number 9, his confidence is in Christ. So not only is his joy in the Lord, now his confidence is in the Lord. I think there's a divine order here. Remember, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So where does the boldness come from? Where does the certainty, the confidence come from? It grows out of being a happy Christian. Could I encourage you to develop and cultivate a happy soul because if your soul is happy in Jesus, then out of that, God will give you the boldness you need to stand up and speak up and do whatever it is God has called you to do at that moment. No matter, no matter what is staring you in the face, you know the Lord is with me in this. And the whole context is Paul said, the confidence is not in my flesh. It's not in what I can do. It's a funny thing. I'm, I'm preaching more than I've ever preached in my life. And I mean, just in meetings all the time. And I am less confident in my sermons than I have ever been. It's really a fascinating thing. Isn't it funny when you first start out and you're very young, you got it all figured out? I mean, you could tell everybody how to do this. And then, excuse me, God knocks a snot out of you. And you get sucker punched a couple times and you hit a wall and you come to the end of yourself and you realize, I, this is not me. I can't do this. But I'm going to tell you what's increasing in me right now. I'm just testifying. While, while my, my confidence in my sermons is diminishing, my confidence in the power of the Scripture is growing exponentially. Like I'm convinced the Word of God still changes people Amen. and that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. So you can stumble and bumble your way through some sermon and feel like, well, that was a flop all you want to. But if your confidence is in Christ, then it's not misplaced confidence because Jesus never fails. He never wastes a day. So my joy is in Jesus and my confidence in Jesus. If you run to the end of the chapter, verse 20 and verse 21, he talks about heaven and the future. I love this. His hope is in Jesus. So now he goes all the way to the future, to the end of the road. Our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And I want to stop and say amen to every bit of that. Christ is our hope. And sandwiched in the middle of all of that, go back to the verses we read at first. 
Christ was not only his joy and his confidence and his hope, Christ was his pursuit. The only thing he was really after was Jesus. May I ask you a personal question? Don't answer out loud. What is it in the Lord's work right now that you are really pursuing? Is it size? More opportunity? What is the pursuit of your work? What is the pursuit of your life? This is fascinating to me. Here's a man who wrote a vast majority of our New Testament, who, who conducted all these missionary journeys and planted all these churches and saw all these people saved and arguably outside the Lord Jesus got more done in the first century church than any other preacher. And when he gets up in years, 35 years removed from the Damascus Road, he is saying, i tell you one thing, boys, the one, only thing I really want is Jesus. I love that. Because if you get Jesus, watch this, you get everything else. My grandpa, not the one that was a preacher, the one that was a farmer and a coal miner and a Navy man, he, he was a genius mind. He could have been, he wanted to be a medical doctor. Never had the opportunity to do it, but he could have been. He just had that kind of mind, a genius mind. But you know, sometimes those people who are geniuses can't translate into simplicity. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Grandpa didn't have that problem. He, he had an amazing way of boiling it all down, the most difficult thing to simplicity. And I still can remember him out on the farm saying, if he said it once, he said it a thousand times growing up. Well, one thing about it. And then he would proceed to boil everything down to one thing. You know part of our problem? We are so everlasting distracted by so many things pursuing so many things that we have taken our eye off the ball. We've taken our eye off the one thing. And for the record, this is not a lecture on how to get more done every day. I remember years ago, Brother Scott, I don't know if you were in this group or not, but pastors sent a group of us down to the University of Tennessee for a little seminar that they were, they were conducting at the School of Business. It was just a two-hour deal. It was fascinating. I really learned some things. We walked into the room. It was filled with professional people. And there were medical doctors and uh, CEOs of companies and all that kind of thing. And we were, we were school administrators, college administrators. And we walked in and found our seat. And a guy came in, and he walked to the board. I'll never forget it. And he wrote on the board these words. Multitasking is worse than a lie. He turned around, he looked at all of us, and he said, nice to see all of you. He said, you look like accomplished people to me and very intelligent people. How many multitaskers are in the room? Well, almost all of us raised our hand. Because we all like to think we can get lots of things done. You know, we're busy, busy, busy. Did you know busyness is very often the enemy of concentration? He said, I want to teach you something today. When I'm done, this is the only thing you remember. You'll remember that multitasking is worse than a lie. He said, take out a piece of paper. We all took out a piece of paper. And he had all of us write that statement on our paper, and then he gave us a little exercise, and it was a timed exercise. Here's what we had to do. We had to write multitasking is worse than a lie, and then underneath each letter, we had to write a number. So it was like multitasking is worse than a lie, and then we went back, and under M, we wrote one, under U, two, L, three, T, four, I, five. You get the idea, until we'd run out of numbers. And it was a timed exercise, and we were all looking at each other. I mean, we're smart people. What's this guy doing treating us like kindergartners? And he timed us, and we all had our time. And then he came back and said, now we're going to multitask. We're all going to multitask. All you multitaskers, we're going to multitask. 
And he said, we're going to time you again, and this time you cannot write the statement first and then the numbers. Now you have to multitask. He said, so you have to literally write it this way, M1, U2, L3, T4, I5. And he said, we're going to see how you do. Almost to a person in the room, every one of us took twice as long to do the exact same task when we did it our way. And now, I'll never forget what the man said to us. He was not a Christian man, but he said this. He said, there's no such thing as multitasking. The human mind doesn't work that way. He said, your mind is a computer. You can't concentrate on many things at the same time. What you are calling multitasking is not multitasking. It's switch tasking. And every time you switch from one task to another and back again, you're losing time and energy. He said, you will get more done if you will concentrate on one thing at a time and finish that one thing. I felt like a total dummy at that moment. And you know what? He was right. I remember Dr. Hudson. Dr. Hudson saying, if there are things, many things that you have to get done, I still remember him holding up those hands with ten fingers. He said, if you've got ten things to get done, he said, don't look at them like this. He said, that's overwhelming. He said, you can't process all of that. He said, let me tell you what you do. Turn them around this way and take one at a time. And he said, when you get to simplicity, one thing at a time, you'll get more done. Now, there's lots of little, little tools like that will help us get more done. But I'm not talking so much just about how to get more done on Monday morning in the office or with the church congregation. I'm talking about our lives. I'm talking about the heartbeat of ministry, a return to one thing. And that is our pursuit of Christ. July 27, 1989, God called me to preach. I had no idea that I was going to end up serving in Tennessee for all those years. I had no idea I was going to be an evangelist. I had no idea that I'd be here tonight. You can't see all of that, can you? But may I tell you about that night? That night, I wanted one thing. I wanted to serve Jesus. That's all I really wanted. I didn't want lots of places to preach, things to do. I didn't want a position or a title. That never crossed my mind. I wanted one thing. I wanted to connect my life to whatever it was God was doing on this planet and make it count. How many of you remember that? Mm -hmm. I mean, when you got in the ministry, what did you get in the ministry for? I would say, if you're sincere, you got in it for one thing. Jesus. But somewhere, somewhere the one thing becomes so many things to get done. So many people pulling on us. So much difficulty. And after a while, what used to be joy is now burden. What used to be delight is now drudgery. What, what used to be what you lived for to get up in the morning is now the thing you lay in bed at night and say, Dear God, how do I get out of this mess? I'll tell you how. You return to one thing. Walk through the passage with me, would you please? And you got your pen handy? I want you to write down some words tonight that maybe will help define this one thing. Now, let's start back in verse number 12. Look at verse number 12. He begins this way. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. Stop right there. That's, that's a good place to stop. Write down the first word. Here's the first word. Ready? It is the word honesty. <laughs> Don't you think preachers ought to be honest? Let's try that one more time. Don't you think preachers ought to be honest? Yeah. At least all the wives ought to say amen. 
Can I tell you the greatest honesty? The greatest honesty is this honesty. I am not what I ought to be. Now, thank God I'm not what he was, but I am not where I need to be. I've got a long ways to go. <laughs> you know where we get in trouble? When we start thinking we're there now. When we start thinking we've arrived. One of the great dangers in the Lord's work is we give off the impression, at least, that we've got it all together. And somewhere we've got to be honest, honest with ourselves, honest with others, honest with God, and we've got to say, Lord, I'm not perfect, I've not yet attained, I'm not there yet. Look, it does not matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the Lord's work or how much experience you have. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is this. What is the image of Christ? And is the image of Christ perfectly in you yet? And the answer to that, I'll just tell you for all of us, is absolutely not. We're not there yet. And so I love this. If you're going to get back to the one thing, the pursuit of Christ, then must be honest. That's not all. Look at verse 12 again. He says, but I follow after. Now write down this word, intensity. We need some renewed intensity. So many Christians right now dealing with just, excuse me, apathy. Any of you dealing with apathy in your churches? trying to get things started again, trying to get people moving again, trying to get them off the bench and in the game. Let me tell you what we need to start with. We need to start with our own souls and the return to the pursuit of Jesus. Because when Christ gets big in our life, look, he'll cry out what shouldn't be there and he'll put in what should be there. When Jesus is big, everything is in his proper place. And Paul said, I'm following after. That's been 30-some years since he first met Christ on the road to Damascus, but it is a return to this one thing. Keep reading. Look at verse number 12. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Write down a third word, sincerity. There's a beautiful sincerity in Paul's words here, a gratitude that Jesus captured him. You remember when you surrendered to ministry, but let's go back prior to that. Do you remember when God saved you? <laughs> and isn't it sad? We get over it. Let's just be real for a minute. We get over it. We lose our tenderness. We get calloused. We become cynical and sour over time. We get exasperated with people and disillusioned with life. And we forget this. Every last one of us deserves to be in hell at this moment. And we are not there. And we are never going there. Because Jesus apprehended us. He captured me. And that sincerity has to get back into our own Christianity. And keep reading. Look at verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Write down a fourth word, humility. He repeats what he said in verse number 12. But listen to the personal way he says it. Brethren, I'm not there yet. The beautiful humility he expresses to the family of God here. He says, I, I've not yet arrived. No matter what you think about me, I'm not there yet. Keep reading. Look at verse 13. But this one thing I do. Write down the word simplicity. Simplicity. One thing. A longing for Christ. A longing for fellowship with Christ. You know, there are times in ministry where you just get spent. Maybe you're there. Maybe that's why you came to a rest conference and you got here and were terribly disappointed because you thought we were going to sleep for three days, but that's not actually what we're doing. 
And there are times you get physically just spent and mentally taxed and emotionally drained and spiritually weary. We all get there. Can I tell you something that is helping me at this juncture on my journey? To go back repeatedly to the day God saved me and to preach the gospel to myself every day. How many of you think an evangelist ought to preach the gospel to others? Let me give you a recommendation. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day. Look in the mirror, at the very least, the mirror of God's word, and say, you're a dirty sinner, and Jesus loves you. And washed you from your sins in his own blood. And you belong to God. I'm just going to tell you, that does something for you. I have a friend in Canada keeps up with us, and <laughs> he follows us around the country, not physically, but online, and watches messages. I hear from him almost every day. I probably have two or three emails right now from my friend. I've not checked it in a few hours, but he said, don't respond. You don't need to respond. He sends me prayers. He prays for me all through the day, all through the night. I get, I get emails at the strangest times. He started concluding his emails with the same phrase. It's really helped me. Here's the way he concludes all of his correspondence. Walk by Calvary every day. <laughs> Walk by Calvary every day. You know what that does? It takes you back to simplicity, to a singleness of purpose. As a matter of fact, let me show you something. Everybody hold your place in Philippians. We're coming right back. Turn back to 2 Corinthians for just a minute. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And look at 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. He says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your minds should be corrupted from, would you mark this expression in your Bible, the simplicity that is in Christ. Did you know your mind can get corrupted as a Christian? That you don't have to be looking at dirty stuff for your mind to get corrupted? That, that your thought life can be totally off and your emotions can be upside down and your priorities can be off center and you don't even have to be living in the world for that to happen. If you do not keep Christ front and center, the simplicity of Christ, your thought life will not be what it's supposed to be. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 3 and keep reading. There is, there is honesty, there is intensity and sincerity and humility and simplicity, and I like this one. Notice what he says, forgetting those things which are behind. There is memory. The right kind of memory. He said, I choose to forget certain things. <laughs> Spurgeon said, by some strange perversity, we tend to remember what we should forget and forget what we should remember. Isn't that true? We nurse our wounds. We add fuel to the fire. Let me ask you a question. Does God forget? Herein lies a theological minefield, doesn't it? Does God forget? Yes. Does that mean that he has a bad memory? No. In fact, he has a very good memory. And yet he cast all of our sins where? Behind. Behind. Everybody look at the verse. Forgetting those things which are what? He cast all of our sins where, please? Behind his back. And it is not that he doesn't know they happen. It is that he chooses not to concentrate on them and never to bring them up again. 
May I say to you, you can't wipe things out of your memory. You can't forget that fellow that did you wrong in the church. You can't forget what that woman said. You can't forget what happened to you. You can't forget that, but you can choose by the grace of God intentionally to put that under the blood of Jesus and in the grace of God, in the past, behind your back, and move on. You can't live there. Let me tell you what I've discovered. You know, I'm with lots of young preachers and I'm with old preachers. And I say that with all due respect. And by the way, they need each other. I think, I said this to the church last night, I think it's a satanic strategy to disconnect an older generation and a younger generation. Because when you disconnect those generations, the older can never invest what they ought to in the younger and the younger can never receive what they need from the older. We've got to, we've got to have both of those. But here's my observation. Young men tend to live in the future and old men tend to live in the past. So the young men I'm with, they all want to talk about 10 years from now, where the church will be and, you know, where the ministry will be and this is the master plan and this is our great strategy and they're living in the future already. And then I'm with older men and they want to tell me, now 30 years ago we did this and, and 10 years ago we saw this and they're living in the past. Oh, I love this. Here, Paul's an old man in Philippians chapter 3. You know where he's living? Right, excuse me, smack dab in the present. Right in the middle of it all. You cannot go back to the past and you cannot yet go to the future. But I'm going to tell you what you have. You have this moment. You have today. You have this hour. And it may be the last one you ever have. Some sermon we give will be the last sermon we ever give. Someday we're going to get up, put our clothes on, and go out to minister to people and witness to folks, and it will be the last opportunity we ever have. You know what I think some of us need to do? Get past our past so we can make today count. You cannot live on yesterday's blemishes. I mean by that, your own failures. I know a man whose whole life and ministry got turned upside down. And it makes no, no point to go into it, but he would tell you if he was standing here tonight, his whole work got just turned upside down and inside out, and it all started when the accuser of the brethren, how many of you know Satan's still a liar? When the accuser of the brethren brought up something from his past that had happened 20-some years before that was already under the blood of Jesus, and he started living under the guilt and condemnation of that, and it opened the door for the devil to get in. I want you to know something. Whatever is in your past is under the blood of Jesus. You can't live in that. You can't live on the burdens of yesterday and the brokenness of yesterday. The things that happen. I'll tell you something else. Forget just the negative. You can't even live on the blessings of yesterday. You know how easy it is once God has blessed to live on yesterday's bread? Yesterday's manna gets stale, friends. We need God today. And that means we got to choose to use the right kind of spiritual memory. By the way, I love this. How many of you have a good short-term memory? I'm just curious. Good short-term memory. How many of you have a good long-term memory? How many of you have neither? Would you raise both hands, please? All right, good. <laughs> I'm learning at this stage in my life. I don't remember some things like I did. And so people say, how do you remember things? I don't. I write them down. I write them down. I write them down. I write them down. Somebody said a short pencil is better than a long memory. And one day it dawned on me. Watch this. God wrote it down for us. May I suggest to you this is God's memory book. You want to think right? You better stay in the Word. You better meditate in Scripture, and I'm not talking about looking for sermons either. You better live in the Bible, because if you don't, you will never remember what you ought to remember. Keep reading. Look at our passage. Forgetting those things you're behind and reaching forth unto those things, man, that's a great phrase, which are before. Would you write down the word surety? There's a certainty in this, an assurance in this. 
What is the surety? That there is something before us. I don't know how I missed this phrase all these years. I always heard everybody emphasize the reaching, the reaching, the reaching, the reaching. Then one day it dawned on me, look at the verse. Reaching unto those things which what? Are before. There's certainty in that. There's, There's surety in that. God has a future for his people. I'm so sick and tired of hearing people in the Lord's work talk about the future like we're all getting ready to fall off the precipice. Brother, I'm going to tell you something. The world is out of control, but God still is on the throne. And a young generation of people coming along behind us do not need to hear us speak in unbelief. They need to hear us speak in faith. There is a God in heaven. He has his eye on his children, his ears open to our prayer. He knows exactly what he's doing. And if we're still here, that means Christ is still building his church. If you are breathing, God is not finished with you. So don't you quit before God is done. There's more ahead. I read recently the story of a a very poor preacher years ago, a little village preacher. He struggled, and he had a wealthy man in his church. And the preacher didn't even know who he was, but a wealthy man in his church had made up his mind he was going to encourage the pastor. Don't we thank God for those people? And every few days, the man would open the mail, and there'd be a little envelope, and in the envelope, there'd be just enough money to help him through the days ahead with his family. And on the back of the envelope every week was this phrase, more to come. More to come. I want to tell you something. God, heaven, has a way of sending some divine resources to you just when you need it. But you remember this. When he does that, just remember, you haven't exhausted the bank. There's more to come. The Spanish people, the 15th century, were the, they were the cat's meow. They were strongest, greatest nation in the world, and they knew it. They were full of themselves and full of pride, and they had coins minted. <laughs> they, they, they were in charge, basically, of the world in the 15th century, and they had these coins minted, and on the coin they had this little motto, and the motto was, nothing beyond. In other words, we got it all, this is it, all there is, and we've captured it, we've conquered it, <laughs> it's, it's under our control. And then there was this discovery, maybe you've heard of it, of the new world. And the Spanish people took all those coins up and reminted them. And on the coins put this motto, more beyond. I think sometimes we hit a wall, we hit a wall, and we think, this is it for me, this is it for me. Let me just tell you, with God, it's not a wall, it's a door. And maybe it hasn't opened yet. But the end of you is the beginning of him. God is not the God of endings. He's the God of new beginnings. And with God, there is always more beyond. And one of the things we ought to be praying in this meeting is, dear God, increase our faith to go home and believe you're not finished with us here and there's more that you want to do. There is more beyond. Keep reading. Look at verse 14. He said, I press toward the mark. Would you write down this word? Continuity. I love this. He says in verse 12, I follow after. But when you get to verse 14, he said, I'm still pressing. (laughs) I'm still pressing. There's some men in this room who have been at it a long time. And I want to say to those men, I I honor you and I admire you for still pressing. I really mean that. As a younger minister, it means something to me to see men not lay down and die. They're still pressing. And if God will help me, I want to do that. I really do. 
Now, that doesn't mean the, the ministry always looks the same at every season of life. There are changes that happen, and there's transitions. But look, you're still pressing. They found Christopher Columbus's journal. They were so excited because they thought, oh, this is going to be just a tale of adventure. And they found the same three-word entry on hundreds of pages. It simply said, we sailed on. You don't find the new world every day. Some days you just sail on. Men are remembered for their extraordinary days, but they're made on their ordinary ones. And I want to tell you, just a lot of days, get up, putting your shoes on, and going to do what God has called you to do. That's what God expects you to do. Let's keep doing that. Press on. William Carey, the pioneer of modern missions, was on his deathbed. You know what he said to his family? He said, when I'm dead and gone, I hope somebody remembers that I was a plodder. Everybody wants to be known as a pioneer. Maybe we need to say, Lord, help me be a plodder. Help me keep putting one foot in front of another and pressing on for the Lord. Look at the verse again. I press toward the mark. Write, write this down, please. Responsibility. Do you understand that there's a mark set for you? Your mark is not mine and my mark is not yours. We all have our own race. We're not competing with each other. We're in our own race. I was reading, studying this passage this week. Now, be honest with me. How many of you, historically, when you read this verse, thought of the mark as the tape at the end of the, at the, end of the relay race? How many of you would say that, right? So it's the finish line. And I was reading a century-old commentary this week, and the fellow said that the wording here, the idea of the mark, in, in Paul's day, the, the Greek games, the, the Isthmian games, the relay races that were run, there were marks laid out. There were lanes like you might see in our Olympics now where each man had his own mark. Each man had his own path marked out for him and he had to stay in his lane. And suddenly this passage started coming alive to me more. The mark is not just the finish mark. Look, please, God has a lane for every one of us. Get in your lane, stay in your lane, and keep moving forward. You don't answer for somebody else and they don't answer for you. Comparison will kill you. It'll kill you. Because you can never measure up. And you can never do everything. I got good news. You ready for the good news? God didn't expect you to do everything. He expected you to do the one thing he gave you to do. D.O. Moody stood in front of a group of young ministers one day. He said, you want to make the most of your life? Two steps. Consecrate and concentrate. Consecrate yourself to God, then concentrate on whatever it is God gives you to do. Near the end of his life, somebody asked Mr. Moody, how'd you get so much done? He answered this way. He said, I live with this motto, this one thing I do, not these many things I dabble in. I told a group of preachers the other day, I have come to the place where I've realized that everything I could do doesn't mean I should do. That is a hard lesson to learn. Because there's a whole lot you can do, but you don't have enough time or energy in your body to do that. What is the lane? What is the mark? What is the race God has given to you? That's what you're responsible for. Do that. One thing. Then notice how the verse ends. This is beautiful. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Write down a tenth word. It's the word glory. Aren't you glad it ends in glory? Where does the race end? It ends at the nail-pierced feet of Jesus at the throne. This word high calling literally has the idea of an upward calling, to be called up. And that day, at the end of the race, the person that won was called up by the king. He didn't stay down there on the track. He was called up into the stands where the king was to receive the victor's crown and to be awarded. This is glorious. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. 
You're not going to stay on this track forever. Very soon, there's an upward call coming. We're all checking out of here and going to be with Jesus. And when we get there, we're going to meet the glory that is given to those who are faithful to the one thing God gave them to do. There's no way I could know what people in this room are dealing with. No way. And there is no way I could address it. And even if I did, I probably couldn't help you. But here's what I know. If every one of us under the help of the Holy Spirit will take this truth about one thing and apply it to our one ministry, I am convinced of this. It would push the spiritual reset button and breathe a freshness of heaven back into every one of us because, look, this is the only way to finish your course with joy. Changed my life verse a few years ago. I don't know if you're supposed to do that or not, but I did. I changed it to Acts 20, 24, but none of these things move me, neither count on my life dear to myself, so that, listen to this carefully, I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus. I missed this for years. Did you ever notice that he puts his course separate from his ministry, his course before his ministry? Let's take a survey. How many of you would like to finish your ministry strong? Then give more attention to being a Christian. I was thinking about this even in our home the other day. I don't need to work harder to have a preacher's home. I need to have a Christian home. Because here's what I know. If I finish my course with joy, God will help me finish my ministry with joy. And only God can do that, and he will only do it when I concentrate on one thing. Thank you for listening. We hope that the Lord has used this message to speak to you. The REST Conference is a meeting designed to encourage and strengthen pastors, missionaries, evangelists, and their wives, along with other Christian workers serving the Lord in their local churches. REST 2022 is scheduled for September 5th through the 7th at the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. We hope that you and your spouse will make plans to be with us. For more information on REST, please visit our website, therestconference.com.